This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Tom Levinson. He's a professor of science writing at MIT. I spoke with him on November 17, 2005, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a recording studio in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This interview is included in our show, Einstein's Ethics. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Among my other things, I'm a film producer, so this is not Excellent. not completely strange to me. Would you like some water? I'd love some, thanks. Sure. I'll bring it in to you. Hello, NPR. Are you there? I am. Is that Hi. Tom Levinson? This is. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. How Hi. Are you doing? Good. Thanks for making time to do this. My pleasure. Um, I know you've had some communication with um, with some of some of our producers. Um, let me just tell you, we're just completing, this is going to be a, a two-part series. We're just finishing up the first program. Um, they'll both air in December, and we have some funding from the NEH for this. And the first, for the first program, I've interviewed um, Freeman Dyson and Paul Davies, and the title of his is Einstein's God. And uh-huh. we also <laughs> have many of his uh, wonderful and varied writings. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and in that, obviously, we did also get into, you know, his science. We kind of did a basic introduction to the science and also the dispute that he had with quantum physics, which elicited some of his greatest uh, comments about God, right? <laughs> God not playing dice. So I just want to sort of give you an idea of what ground we've covered. And and what we want to, what I, what we want to focus on for the second program, calling it, Working title is Einstein's Ethics. And um, so I, I don't think that we'll go too much into the science per se, but sort of imagine that we're a little ways down the road with some of that. Excellent. And also, as you know, because you've, you're a producer, I mean, we're, we're crafting this so that it will be a sophisticated, intelligent program, but also not overburdening our listeners with scientific detail that... Yeah, you know, I, that we can't I, do justice to in, in an hour of radio. I understand. You, okay. Um, who else is going to be in the second hour? Well, we have a few interviews lined up. I'm not sure um, I'm not sure that we know exactly. I'm going to interview, what is Professor Gates' first name? Sylvester Gates. Do you know him? Uh, yeah. Um, who's who will, is into string theory, but also is very is very interested personally in um, Einstein's relationship to race. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and yeah. I yeah. I think he goes by by Jim. It's S it's S James Gates. I oh, believe. he does. Yeah, he goes, Ca- Colleen's shaking her head. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also interviewing a woman, uh, an Indian physicist, uh, Priya Natarjan. Uh, she I think she's at Yale. Mm-hmm. Has been recommended her. to us, and um, I don't know. We're we're casting a wide net a bit on this one, and I'm not exactly sure how this hour will shape up. But I think you um, have a lot to say about some of the important points we need to to get into. Sure, I have I'll, some stuff to say about Einstein and God as well. But oh, you do? Well, if you're locked on that one, you're locked. Um, <laughs> no, we're not locked. Well, you know, say it if we if it if it uh, if it just occurs naturally in the conversation. I want to hear sure, it. Sure, of course. Um, 
I'll just say personally that I spent most of my 20s in Berlin, a very different Berlin from the one you were writing about in the 1980s, mm. but uh, your book is just wonderful. Thank I you really so much. enjoyed reading it. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, okay, Mitch, you need to hear him. Uh, could you d- tell me something banal like what you had for lunch? I had some extremely bad Chinese food for lunch. <laughs> my hair is brown, except it's mostly gray now. My eyes, my mother used to refer to as stewed prune in color, which shows you what kind of mom I had. What else can I say <laughs> that's banal? Mitch, how are we doing? Okay. He, all right, Mitch is calling the engineer there. He's got some question about levels, so just give us a minute to resolve that. Do you have any questions of me about the show? Uh, no, I assume you're going to, you know, I, I mean, uh, well, I guess w- what is the, if you are, what's the, what's the sort of tagline you, you use when you say this is Speaking of Faith, the program that brings what to you? We say, um, Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Um, yeah, that gives you a fair amount of room to maneuver. It gives us a lot of room to maneuver. It's actually pitched intellectually <clears throat> very high. Mm-hmm. which is counterintuitive for the religion program, but it's working really well. Unfortunately, we're not on in Boston. It's a big gap. We're on three times in the weekend in New York and all over the place, and we haven't made it to Boston yet, but we will. Are you in Wisconsin? Are you in Madison? Um, you know, we're in, we're in Milwaukee. We're not in Madison. Yeah. Oh, too bad. Yeah. We will be in all of these places one day. We're still a new show. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope you'll send me a, a CD. Oh, we absolutely will. And um, yeah, we've we have actually done a number of programs with scientists. These are some of my some of my favorite interviews and favorite programs. Okay, Mitch says we can go. Um. Well, it seems to me that if we start thinking about Einstein's um, ethical views, uh, his ethical worldview, actually. Religion is not necessarily where it begins. I mean, that that um, he did have a brief period of Jewish fervor when he was young, but then turned his back on that. I mean, it, it looks to me, when I, when I think about his ethics, that, that his first, um, and I just want to know if, if this is also the way you see it, or if you would correct this or see it differently, that, that where he really starts to express um, ethical views is on the subject of war. Um. I think there's no question that Einstein's uh, sort of ethical intelligence begins to operate when he confronts the sort of completely unexpected reality of World War I. Right. And um, I think like a lot of ethical thinkers, uh, Einstein began his development as a, as a a person of, you know, moral inquiry and moral stature, uh, from real concrete examples of particular, particular events around him and particular actions by people that he thought he knew and came to realize right. in the context of the start of the war that he really didn't know. Um, his initial opposition to what was happening around him was not pacifism in the way that, that he became a true ethical pacifist in the 20s, uh, it was a kind of internationalism 
uh, based on what he imagined the proper life of the scientist was about. He saw science and the scientific community as a transnational kind of supernation of of good, well-thinking, moral individuals. Huh. And he came to Berlin just before the First World War. He came in part because even though he felt no particular attraction to Germany, uh, some of the minds that he most wanted to spend time with were clustered right there in Berlin, great physicists and, right. and others. And he thought that they thought as he did, that, that their allegiance to science was more important than their allegiance to truth, their allegiance to seeking truth and sharing it, uh, irrespective of you know national origin or what have you. He thought all that was shared by the people he was going to be with as much as it was something that he felt deeply himself. Uh, and then, the, you know, two, three months after he gets to Berlin, the war starts, and he suddenly realizes that he's been completely wrong about some of the people he respects, even loves most deeply in the world. I mean, Max Planck being uh, the first among all of these. Um, you know, Planck and the others become rabid German nationalists. Planck sends his students off the war fighting in the right. Um, the leading German scientists all sign the hateful manifesto that came out in the in the fall of 1914, um, right. saying that Germany was in the right, all that sort of stuff. So you're, you yeah, yeah. Cut me and, off well, okay. Like yeah, no, I will. And and it seems to me that you know part of his initial response, and you you just alluded to this, is just that you know where that 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 he's so upset about this collapse of reason, right? That nationalism, that this emotion contrasts with him, which seems to be the what seems to be the primary value of science. I think Einstein's reaction to the the sort of rabid nationalism of even those close to him in 1914, is partly a response to what he sees as the collapse of reason. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that people just, you know, have... I mean, he, at one point, you know, he, he has this great quote where he says, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, the uh, the man who loves it marching in line and, 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 and shooting at each other doesn't need the higher brain. Uh, the simple brainstem <laughs> right. will do, right? right? Right, I mean, it's a terrible paraphrase, but, he, you know, he clearly has no no patience for that. But it's not just the collapse of reason in the sense of people not thinking clearly. It's it's more like the collapse of what he thought was a moral order. Mm-hmm. Um, he thought that science had not just um, a method, you know, a way of thinking about the natural world that would produce rigorous results. He thought science had a social order as well and one that connected scientists to each other through ties more deeply, a shared goal, a shared way of life. Um, that wasn't just the accumulation of research and results. And that was what was shattered in the first years of the war. And that was what made him, I think, really start to think as an ethical person, what ought one to do? It's not enough just to do something that seems to be a value like science. You actually have to p- take a positive responsibility for your own action. Mm-hmm. And that's when he starts thinking like a like somebody who wants to be involved in ethics. Um, you know, more than just saying, oh, people are crazy, people are stupid, people are unreasoning. You know, that's that's obviously something that he did think in the context of the war, but that wasn't enough. You know, it was really striking to me to read to be reading in your book, Einstein in Berlin, um, the, the date sort of to get this timing that, you know, even in the year 1915, of course, the First World War is is happening. Um, but he's also finalizing the theory of general relativity, his spectacular uh, scientific contribution. And in that year, he's also publishing his credo, My Opinion of the War. Um, so you know, even as he is in the thick of this wor- world-changing science, he's very passionately engaged also 
having a voice in that debate. That's right. And I think that's a, that's a new thing for Einstein. I mean, mm-hmm. before the war, he would just do his science. You know, I mean, that was what he was interested in. He'd, he'd see his friends, he'd make his music, but most of all, he would concentrate on his science. The reality of the war, and by 1915, after a year of war, the, the utter senseless bloodiness, bloody, you know, just, it was a horrible stalemate. It was obvious it was a stalemate. It was obvious it was a disaster. Obvious, at least to Einstein, not to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by that point, he realized that however thoroughly involved he was in his science, however compelling it was, uh, science wasn't enough. He was part of a larger community. I mean, there's a paradox here. He went to Berlin thinking he was part of a scientific community that transcended nation, and he found that he wasn't. But in finding that he wasn't, he evoked in himself a responsibility to humankind, in some sense, beyond the scientific community that really was his focus up till then. So he does become, in some senses, more transnational by this experience, even as those around him become less. It's interesting because I I don't think um, at that point that he's necessarily yet identifying with his uh, with his Jewish identity. But in this um, credo, my opinion of the war, he 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 writes this: Why you know after giving after talking about after comparing you know the the wars between these nations as something like a fracas between little boys like first graders uh, that. As for little boys, so for nations, that war is mindless, as you say. And then he he says, but why so many words when I can say it in one sentence, one very appropriate for a Jew, honor your master, Jesus Christ, not only in words and songs, but rather foremost by your deeds. I mean, is that a kind of argument that you would expect Einstein to make at that point? Actually, it is. I think Einstein would make exact, I mean, he did make that argument. Mm -hmm. I think it's very much in character. Uh, in part because of the sarcasm. I mean, Einstein, we right. have this image of the kindly grandfather, but Einstein was a very sharp wit. He, was, uh, he could be harsh in his, uh, in his language. Um, and he didn't tolerate foolishness or hypocrisy gladly. So uh, that, that almost dismissive slap, you know, stop messing around honor Jesus Christ, you know, honor your master. I mean, the, 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 the tone, the, the words delivered in a tone that implies the opposite. Obviously, you are not serving your master. Obviously, you don't see Jesus Christ as your master. You're doing, you know, exactly the opposite of what Christ would, uh, would ask of you. Um, and I have nothing more to say about it. I'm just the Jew quietly standing to one side, observing your hypocrisy is, is part of what's being said there. Yeah. I mean, there's but a... Partly, sorry, go on. I'm, I'm go sorry, on. partly he's absolutely sincere. Um, you know, the uh, the universal message of Jesus, the one that speaks uh, beyond the specifics of Christian doctrine or ritual or what have you, um, is that one of uh, honoring humankind, all mm-hmm. humankind. Mm-hmm. Um, and Einstein certainly did feel that very strongly. So, so the sarcasm is there and so is the message. And I think the, the reference to his own Jewishness is not actually that surprising at this point. It's earlier than his full-fledged engagement in Jewish causes. Um, but, you know, he'd been aware of anti-Semitism. He'd been aware of himself as a Jew in the negative sense, as, as somebody seen as the other by the larger Christian society around him uh, for a long, long time. I mean, he, he knew he was Jewish in some sense all his life. And the experience of, um, 
of moving to Berlin and experiencing some of the sort of genteel anti-Semitism that was present in Berlin even before the rise of the really hateful anti-Semitism of the post-war period, I think, you know, I mean, I think he had a sense of himself as a Jew, even though it wasn't the same sense he would have later when when he got more deeply engaged affirmatively in the Berlin Jewish community. There's um, you know, there's another quote I, I found from 1918 where he again refers to Jesus and and to himself as as a Jew. Um, I prefer to string along with my countryman, Jesus Christ, whose doctrines you and your kind. He's writing to a German nationalist considered to be obsolete. Suffering is indeed more acceptable to me than resorting to violence. In something else that's very interesting to me. In reading your account, in putting Einstein in the context of his times, is that um, the theory of relativity itself, the science that he was doing, um, was subversive in the Germany in which he was working. I mean, that he was talking about relativity and Germany was formulating absolutes. Certainly, the, the, some people in Germany saw Einstein's relativity as a corrosive, quote, Semitic, unquote, attack on eternal verities. Um, it's, it's something of the same way that some people in our society now see uh, evolutionary biology as, uh, as an attack on the foundations of religious right. faith. Right. Um, and I think the people who've, who see that are, are, are critically in error in a bunch of different ways. Uh, but, you know, it's also possible, I think, both then and now to overemphasize um, the, the kind of opposition. Because, I mean, when the Anti-Relativity uh, League held a meeting in, in Berlin shortly after the war, um, a number of, uh, of, of folks attended. And there was one prominent scientist and, and some other less prominent scientists who were involved in the attack on Einstein's relativity. But by far the preponderance of Germany's scientific community in the early 20s, you know, regarded these people as buffoons, as fools, um, and regarded the attack as, as both being, you know, terrible science and a very bizarre interpretation of German history of, of you know, mm-hmm. what makes, you know, what, what makes for uh, a, a strong culture and a strong sense of your own history. Um, and again, you know, I mean, it's, it, things are never precise parallels, but it is true today that, that uh, the... Uh, the relative, the the actually small number of scientists who are opposed to evolution um, are regarded by the you know almost every scientist and just about everyone who's working in detail in the fields under question as being simply wrong. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of reasons and there's all kinds of arguments and the structure of the you know people who are interested in can readily find the detailed argument for why the the claims against evolution uh, are based on on bad science or no science. Um, and I think a lot of people, including uh, some, some pastors I spoke to on a recent visit to Minnesota, uh, are really deeply worried that the, the, the marrying of this bad science with one particular interpretation of religion actually does a lot of damage to religion as a whole. Right. And that was certainly how a lot of Germans felt in the early 20s, is that the attempt to, to brand some science as anti-German did not bring any credit on Germany. And I think the fact that Einstein was Jewish also played into people's readiness to find something wrong with his science. I mean, would that be right? Or to I think continue? that I, hmm, sorry, go uh, on. 
I mean, there was certainly an element of anti-Semitism in the attacks on Einstein in particular. Mm -hmm. There was an element of anti-Semitism in the claim that relativity was somehow um, not true German, mm -hmm. uh, not, 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 didn't show the true qualities of German thought. It's sort of like uh, when a, a late 19th century German historian uh, attacked the great half-Jewish German poet, I mean, one of the greatest users of the German language ever, Heine, uh, as being un-Germanic because you could never imagine him writing a good, honest German drinking song. I mean, it's sort of, you know, <laughs> okay. right. people with an agenda will find very yeah. bizarre ways to express themselves. Right. But the other thing to remember is that modern physics, uh, two things, modern physics was seen as much more Jewish a pursuit in general than some Germans thought was healthy, hmm. and that other developments in physics, uh, especially the quantum theory to come in the, in the mid and late 1920s, which happened to be developed in large part by non-Jewish German scientists, Heisenberg and Schrödinger, um, you know, that was, you know, just as, if not more, I mean, it, was, it, it really is more corrosive, more upsetting to eternal verities and all that in relativity, <laughs> right. which in, in, in uh, if you look at more it through chaotic. the right lenses, you can see relativity as, as sort of the last classical physics, physics theories and quantum mechanics is the beginning of the true modern era. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Einstein was more... More, more congenial, I think, to a classical sensibility than, more than orderly. the quantum theory. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know. Right. So, all right. So his Jewish identity, he, he started to become aware of himself, perhaps, this would be the way to say it, as Jewish in a new way, in response to anti-Semitism, which he saw all around him, not just um, as directed at him. But tell me this, I mean, he did then develop... Um, quite a positive and substantive relationship to Judaism. And I'd just like to hear your account of, of that, how that happened and what form it took. Einstein's engagement with Judaism, I think, developed over time. And he had, a, he had a, as, as you mentioned, he had this brief... I'm sorry, let, let me just ask you again. Are your questions going to be edited into the transcript or is this? Are, am I supposed to be doing wholly self-contained no, answers? No, it will be question and answer. And it will be okay, edited. Okay, good. Yeah. So I can say things you like, can, as you talk. You know, yes, okay, and you can do that, and you can also start over and say something differently if you feel like it. Cool. All right. Um, you know, Einstein's engagement with Judaism, I mean, as, as, a, as a real part of his life, was something that evolved over sort of several stages. I mean, he had, as you mentioned, the youthful, you know, just sort of sudden burst of enthusiasm for, you know, the traditional religious kind of experience, reading the texts and the stories of the Bible and so forth. As a young boy, uh, a period of enthusiasm that ended abruptly when he, when he started learning some science and realized that, as he saw it, he'd been lied to, that you know, some of the stories in the Bible couldn't be true, and therefore he'd been deceived, and he had a sort of revulsion to it, a, right. a kind of equal and opposite reaction. But as an adult, um, you know, he felt himself, in some senses, forced back on not simply a, a sort of loose ethnic affiliation of Judaism, you know, I have distant, I have Jewish ancestors, but an actual engagement saying, I am a Jew now, uh, that was forced on him in part by the, you know, anti-Semitic world around him and his sense, particularly the persecution of poor Jewish refugees that, that started occurring in Germany and elsewhere immediately after the First World War. And, you know, he started identifying himself with, with, with uh, Jewish causes. He started accepting the label of being a Jew, I think, right. ever more readily. And at some point, I think, the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of next logical step occurred to him, which is, is if I call myself a Jew, what does that actually mean beyond simply being in solidarity with people to whom I have other ethnic ties? And the notion of being tied to somebody just by blood was never something that suited, you know, never sat well with Einstein. Right. And I think he started 
trying to extract from what he understood of Judaism something that he could really hang on to as a credo of his own. And it was never going to be, you know, five books of Moses Judaism, that, that sort of sense of, of stories in the Bible that couldn't be true. The Bible is a, a revelatory text that literally tells you what happened with a God that intervenes in history and, you know, splits the sea and burns the bush and talks to Abraham and all those kinds of mm. things. Presumably that was a, that was a, meddles with the laws of physics also, that God. Yeah, I mean, the idea of a God who has, has an arbitrary power to mess with the laws of physics was never something that, <laughs> that, that, that Einstein liked. I mean, his idea of a God was much more Spinoza's God, somebody, something that you recognize sort of imminent in the order, the gorgeous and, and you know, enormous order to be found in nature. I mean, if you think about it one way, there's no reason nature should be so ordered and there's no reason that our minds should be so capable of discerning an ever deeper, ever richer, ever more fundamental way of, of, of recognizing that order whenever we look up at the sky or look around at the, the evolution of the, of, the, uh, of the living world or the, the changes in the, in the material world of, of existence, all that kind of thing. There's no a priori logical reason why that must be so. And it's, it's that fact that it is so and that we can find out about it that, that is the embodiment of, I think, divinity for Spinoza and for Einstein. Mm-hmm. But you go beyond that and you say, all right, that's not the God of Abraham, but what kind of God is it? It's, well, it's really, as I see it, it's the God of Micah. You know, what does God ask of you right. except to you know, uh, do justice? And uh, I'm blanking on the complete Do justice, quote. was it love, mercy? And walk. Yeah, do just do justice, love mercy, and walk in the ways of your God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 a God that that Einstein could get his head around. Did Einstein and, uh, did Einstein quote that passage of Micah? I mean, that is a very uh, famous and beloved key passage. But did he quote that also? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I, I mean, mean it, it does it does crystallize a lot of this. I mean, you know, I, it's what I have read and heard is that he never gave himself over to Jewish devotion in any kind of sense or worship. Did did he no. study the Bible? Because he did, you know, he did have this sense of the moral core of Judaism, the, the fanatical love of justice, as he said it, or a moral attitude in life. I mean, where did, where did he draw that from? He drew that, I think, from the Jewish tradition of scholarship and eth- ethical scholarship, of okay. an attempt to understand for the you know for the Talmudists through, through through direct and deep study of of the Bible, but over the course of Jewish history, this this attempt to understand what it takes to live well in the world, um, you know, it's 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 if you take it out of context, it's the phrase out of Deuteronomy. I mean, I've shown you when Moses is, is doing his last speech to uh, to the people of Israel before leaving them as they cross over into to the land of Israel. Uh, he says, you know, therefore I've given you a choice. Um, a choice of, of the bad ways, which is death, and a choice of the things you must do to lead a good life, in effect, to lead a good life, uh, which is that of that of life. Therefore, choose life is the biblical phrase. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it's it's the tradition of attempting to understand just what it means to lead a good life and how to do it is what Einstein really saw as the core of his Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, he saw ritual practice, the, um, the actual... You know, doing of the daily commandments and the you know the prayer three times a day and the all the things that you must do to lead a halachic or religious law governed Jewish life. Uh, he saw that as as um, 
as completely as uninteresting or worse. I mean, his, his <laughs> what he said on seeing the um, the Orthodox praying before the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem on his one visit uh, to Palestine in 1921, 21 or 22, I think 22, I guess. But anyway, he he he, um, he saw the people praying at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall of the uh, of the Second Jewish Temple, and he just saw these as pathetic. Uh, pathetic men without a past or future. I mean, it was it was derisive language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if it had come from anybody other than Einstein, you'd think, oh, what an anti-Semite, but it was Einstein, <laughs> so it can't be. But his reaction to sort of the rote ritual practice of, you know, ancient religious ritual was just, he, he thought it was, you know, meaningless. I mean, he also concluded for himself that, that Judaism was not a transcendental religion. Um. I don't, yeah, and I don't know if he was in conversation um, about his ideas about Judaism with others in his time. Oh, he had conversations, yeah. um, and there there are certainly other people who know much more about that uh, than I do. But he mm-hmm. was in conversation with secular Jewish figures, uh, you know, Zionist leaders like Chaim Weizmann and 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 the the German Zionists. Um, and he had conversations with much more religious people, and he had exchanges of letters with rabbis and so forth. And yeah. some of his longer writings on religion were prompted by inquiries from from religious figures who wanted to understand what he thought and what he meant by religion. Um, and, you know, it's always dangerous to put words in anyone's mouth, and it's much more dangerous when, you know— you're, you're, you know, Tom Levinson sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts yeah. in, in the 21st century trying to put words in Einstein's mouth. But I think what he meant by Judaism not being a transcendental religion is what a lot of people have understood uh, by that thought, which is there is a transcendent spiritual strand in Judaism. There's no question about it. But a great deal of Judaism, the preponderance of sort of Judaism, as I understand it, and I think as Einstein understood it, is really about this world, how to mm-hmm. live in this world, how to do justice in this world, how to be charitable in this world, how to be honorable in this world, uh, what's required of you to be a good person. I mean, the, the, the classic phrase in Hebrew of the obligation of the Jew is tikkun olam, to heal the world. Right, right. And that's this world, not a transcendent one. Mm-hmm. And, and the, I mean, I don't think... Sorry, go on. I'm just saying that I don't think Einstein was unusual. I think there are extremely religious people who feel that, 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 that the, the ground of religious life is this world, extremely religious people in Judaism and other religions. And there are you know, many Jews who are much more secular in their relationship to the specifics of Judaism who still feel very strongly that the essence of Judaism is that, that obligation uh, to tikkun olam. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also think sometimes Christians don't understand that in Judaism, I mean, Christians often talk about believing, but believing is really not as important as doing and living, right? I mean, here's this lovely line of Einstein that kind of summarizes what you just said, serving in Judaism, serving God is equated with serving the living. That's nice. I think that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, there are many statements about God and about the sort of sum of Judaism with which the rabbis would have disagreed strongly with Einstein. But I think most of the rabbis, certainly very many of them, would have had no problem with that one and would have agreed with that. Now, he did become openly um, Zionist and a, and a great champion of the state of Israel later in his life. And, and I, just, I just want to ask you how he reconciled that, given his strong objection to the emotionalism of 
of nationalism, you know, not just in Germany, but all over Europe in the earlier part of the 20th century? Did he see that as qualitatively different, uh, sort of being passionate about the Jewish state? He, he saw his support for and the necessity of the Jewish state as an extremely complicated and fraught thing. He, he didn't see it as different. Uh, he saw it as very problematical. He actually became committed to the Zionist cause quite early. I mean, he, he was recruited to go to the United States to raise money for the founding of Hebrew University by the Zionist movement in 1921. Hmm. You know, it was, he was not, this wasn't, you know, a, a, a conversion in the 40s. This was this was something that, that was one of his earliest expressions of solidarity with Judaism. Okay. And, uh, but he wrote letters. I mean, he wrote about how troubling it was that the, the reality of Jewish life as the situation got worse and worse in Europe, you know, sort of required a national solution. And he only hoped, I mean, he wrote this explicitly, he, he hoped that the necessary relative weakness of a small Jewish state in the middle of the Middle East would keep the nationalism of, of, of that state in check, would keep it modest. Um, he was aware of the, of the probability of conflict with the Arabs. He hoped that there would be solutions. He, he wrote about them. And critically, even though he supported the Zionist goal, he was never officially a Zionist, and it was a distinction that mattered. I mean, uh, he didn't join the official Zionist organization. Uh, the head of German Zionists, uh, Zionists wrote once to Chaim Weizmann, be careful, Einstein. He's not entirely of us. You know? hmm. he, has, he has reservations. He's going to be trouble. And he was. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was uh, and, and, and I think both sides, Einstein and the people he supported, always knew that. When he was offered the presidency of Israel after Weizmann's death, um, he... Uh, uh, you know Ben Gurion, who the, the then the, the great founding prime minister of Israel, who, who made the offer. That was in 1952. Right. You mm-hmm. know, so so Ben Gurion uh, says, "Oh my God, what do we do if he accepts?" <laughs> and Einstein said no, and he said no officially because he was too old and he didn't want to move from Princeton and all that. But he really said no, and he admitted this because he didn't want to be in a position where he would have to disagree publicly hmm. with the uh, leadership of the new state of Israel. And he felt sure it would happen. In in the letter in which he officially declined, I mean, I, I was quite struck by this sentence, though. Um, so this is in 1952, not that long before his death. Um, my re- he wrote, my relationship to the Jewish people has become my strongest human bond ever since I became fully aware of our precarious situation among the nations of the world. It's, I mean, it's growing distant in memory now. Uh, the Holocaust is becoming sort of a more abstract symbol as it becomes more distant, and those who survived it are dropping away. Those who promulgated it are disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Albert Einstein, the you know he always knew the Nazi movement was a deadly, life-destroying disaster for Germany and for the world. But when the true extent of the Holocaust and this sort of rabid, uncontrolled, uh, utterly heartless and ruthless destruction of human lives and a human culture of that he saw as having enormous value, transcendent, you know, tra- here transcendent value, um, he never got over that. I mean, that was, you know... Th- 
that was it wasn't a conversion experience. He was already strongly identified with Judaism and Jewish causes, but it it, it sealed, I think, a number of both emotions and conclusions that he had reached. And I believe at that point, you know, his identification with Judaism became you know, became as total as he said it was. Yeah. You know, it becomes more important to stand by something that's been so nearly destroyed. Try and try and restore its 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 figure, its health, its prospects for for prospering in the future. Right. And there is this <laughs> very stark contrast between um, Albert Einstein, the public figure who threw himself into you know, caring about the fate of humanity in his in protesting the war and in becoming involved in in uh, the plight of the Jewish people, and then in his own personal life, um, he he wasn't he wasn't a very caring person. Or I don't know. I mean, I I also kind of think we can overdo this because we can we can look back at the personal lives of all kinds of great people, many great men, <laughs> right, and find uh, neglected wives. But, I mean, it, it is very striking. And you tell some of the story uh, stories in your book of, of Einstein's marriages. I mean, Einstein saying, I treat my wife as an employee I cannot fire. Um, but Einstein himself wrote uh, that his passionate sense of social justice and social responsibility always contrasted oddly with his pronounced freedom from the need for direct contact with other human beings and other human communities. I'd just be curious about how you came to see him and understand this contrast as you delved into telling the story of his life and his times. You know, it's it's funny. When you spend, you know, many years, as I did, you know, in the in the daily company of Albert Einstein, <laughs> writing you know writing about him uh, as intensely as I did, you go through it's just like with any close relationship. You go through you know there are times when you when you think this is the most wonderful thing in the world, and there are times when you think, oh, how could I spend such um, such energy on such a, such a cad? What a waste of time! You know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think he's this you know transcendent symbol of human reason and goodness, and you know. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, he's a cat, and <laughs> Sunday I take the day off and, and play with my own child. Right. Um, but, but in a real answer to your question, I think, you know, on the one hand, yes, Einstein was, was a, a fully as complex and real a human being as any of the rest of us are. The temptation with a great figure like Einstein or anyone else is always to try and see them as unalloyed greatness, some kind of pure essence right. of something the rest of us are not. But in fact, he has greatness in his in many ways. He's a great scientist. He took the fame that was sort of thrust on him, and he, with courage and I think a real ethical sensibility, tried to make use of it for the betterment of the world. But he was also a person with a complicated family life. He was a person who, in the midst of a divorce, could grow actually mean, cruel. Mm-hmm. And that quote you, you cited about treating my, my wife as an employee, that was not what he said when he first married that particular wife. That was what he said in the middle of, yeah. of the, the breakup. And, and people say terrible things when they're breaking up. And Einstein was no, exp- uh, no exception. And because he was gifted with language and invective, <laughs> right. he could say more terrible things right. than many of us. I mean, and he's he, good at it. He is good at it. Um, and, and, you know, I think he was like a lot of people, somewhat compartmentalized. 
I mean, he didn't want to think of himself as a bad person, but he really did not see the need for... He did not ever tolerate well any kind of emotional claim on him. He was capable of great loyalty. Uh, he would do lots of things for friends or students or colleagues or even distant acquaintances who were in trouble. But he didn't want that to imply any obligation to do so. And when it came to people who were living with him, who were taking care of him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he would really try and keep them at arm's length because he didn't want to impose on himself obligations he just didn't feel like shouldering. Not an admirable trait. I'm not trying to defend him. I'm just saying that's who he was. And I don't think that's incompatible with, that, with having a strong sense of social justice. No. Um, I just think it says that Einstein really was a human being, and in certain of his relationships, he was deeply flawed. I mean, he, he really hurt many of the people closest to him. It was tough being married to him. It was tough being his child. Right. It, it seems like clearly it was very tough being married to him, tough being his child. I, it, it does also seem that he had long, close friendships I mean, it doesn't seem to me that all of his personal relationships, I mean, it was specifically that, as you say, those family relationships, the people with whom yeah. he spent day and yeah. night. Einstein had a great capacity for long and loyal friendship. I mean, he was, he was a, um, and, and, you know, not just, it wasn't just childhood friends. I mean, if, if, if you reached him or he reached you at a, at a, at a, at a greater age, uh, he, he was somebody who would, who would try to make, things good for you or try to help you uh, or just be a good companion. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's... And, you know, the other thing is that, is that all of these things are particular situations. He married young. He married his, his college sweetheart. He married over the opposition of both her and his parents. He married in... in she got you know, pregnant. After they'd had, yeah. you know, after they'd right. had an out-of-wedlock child. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people have ended up in bad marriages through marrying too young, through marrying in the context of this kind of biological imperative. Um, and, you know, if it weren't Albert Einstein and we heard that somebody got divorced after 10 years of marriage and it just hadn't worked out, we'd sort of say, well, you know, it's a shame it happened. It's a shame they couldn't have, you know, figured out a way not to, not to get entangled in the first place. But it happens. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be seen as earth-shattering. Somehow the fact that Einstein couldn't make a good marriage... Mm-hmm. Uh, and he married a second time, and it was much more clearly a marriage convenience. And, and at least by the second time around, he had learned enough of himself to be very clear to the woman who became his wife early on uh, the real limits of the amount of affection and, and, and emotional connection uh, she could expect from him. Again, not necessarily very nice, but at least it had the virtue of clarity. Right. I mean, so, you know, we you can say that he wasn't a paragon of virtue, of ethical virtue in his marriages. However, I mean, you know, I I haven't spent as much time as you did um, with Einstein, studying him intensively. Um, but it, in the time that I have spent um, reading him, thinking about him, reading about him, the way I've kind of come to understand it is, and I don't have this quote in front of me, but you know, at some point he said, I, I sense that there's something, you know, larger than me, larger than humanity, or that I am part of something greater, um, and, and that makes me happy. <laughs> and that, that, that he, in some ways, was really able to throw himself into that something larger in a way that he wasn't able to throw himself into the details of daily life. Yeah. He had a, a profound sense of connection sort of to the abstract, or at least impersonal 
beauty of the world mm-hmm. or the, and the, the larger nature of the world. He, he said statements like the one you just paraphrased a couple times. One was when he was very ill and possibly dying in 1917 during the war in a letter to the wife, to a friend who was the wife of a fellow physicist, Hedvig Born, I think it was, it was to Hedvig Born, and, and her husband was Max Born. Um, and then again, when he was traveling by ocean from Germany to the United States in, I think, 1931, when the situation was clearly falling apart in Germany, and he was thinking about, uh, thinking about leaving Germany for good, and he sort of took a look at the, uh, at the ocean, and he had that sense of being immersed in a larger, impersonal reality. And it's clear that he felt a sort of congenial home in, that, in almost the impersonality of this great order of nature. And the messy details of, of daily life were something that he just felt less at home with. Right. <laughs> you know, and the other thing to mention is, you know, when you talk about relationships of sex and emotion, lots of people do all kinds of things that they cannot actually explain even to themselves. Mm-hmm. And Einstein was one of those. I mean, he, there's a he once got into a, an argument with his uh, with his second wife, basically over the fact that Einstein was having an affair. As you, if you read b- between the lines of the account by his then son-in-law, and um, his son-in-law had remembered asking Einstein not to bring this whole issue up with uh, with his mother-in-law again because it had already been already been you know sort of a, a subject of dispute in the household. And Einstein promised he would, and then he did it again anyway. And and his son-in-law then asked him, well, why did you do it? And and he said, sometimes you do things and you don't know the reason you do them. And, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> we, we've human, all been there. <laughs> yeah, that's a human being, not necessarily a physicist. Right. Um, so, I mean, do you see parallels in that? I do, between the way he also, between his that sort of this view of the world he had as a human being and his ethical stance as a human being, and and the way he pursued science. I mean, he until the end of his life, he w- he was looking for the, this grand unified theory. He was always looking up. He was always looking at the largest level of physics, as well. I think that's true, but I don't think that was unique to Einstein. I think Einstein's. I mean, the idea of unification in physics, the, the attempt to explain more and more of the forces known in nature and the phenomena known in nature through a smaller and smaller number of ideas is something that had really been a major part of physics for a long time. And it got a real boost in, in the work of Einstein's most, you know, most important immediate predecessor, James Clerk Maxwell, who unified the ideas of electricity and magnetism, took two different phenomena and married them together and showed they were a single phenomenon with different manifestations in the world. And Einstein pursued a similar uh, sort of theme of unification um, when he married the concepts of space and time into space-time, which is, is, is you know, embedded in his special theory of relativity, though you know, it was first identified by another person, but Einstein then used it, and showed also that matter and energy are actually one thing called matter-energy, you know, that's what the meaning of the, the famous equation e equals mc squared says. You know, energy and matter are are interchangeable, okay. in the, you know, mm-hmm. governed in in a, in a relationship described by that formula, uh, and uh, and he showed how gravitation, the the theory of gravity, the how the universe on the large scale is organized, can be derived from a deep understanding of the relationship of matter and energy to space and time, or matter, energy, and space time, um, and I think that. 
this idea of unification, of subsuming sort of the theories that explain different parts of the world into one theory, is something that, that, that a lot of people found appealing. So when quantum theory came along, I mean, and, and, you know, I, it's important that Einstein went for this unification actually before quantum theory started presenting a sharp contrast to relativity theory, a sharp conflict with it in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly when quantum theory came along, and it explained with great success the behavior of things in the realm of the very small, and general relativity was clearly a functioning theory, a very successful theory for explaining things on the very large scale of, of you know, the gravitational behavior of the universe as a whole. The notion that you'd want to put all that together, I think, was was partly one that you may say derives from Einstein's, you know, sort of general cast of mind, but it was also something that was, you know, a logical way to think about the problem in front of you. Now, Einstein pursued it in a way that was, un, you know, vanishingly unlikely to produce success. He was premature. He didn't incorporate some of the other discoveries that were coming in about forces that he didn't know about when he started doing his physics, the strong and weak forces within the nucleus of the atom. Um, so there wasn't much likelihood, and in some ways the attempt to do the work he was trying to do was simply premature. The, his grand uh, unified, his unified field Grand theory. unified theory, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may also have been, you know, the, 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 the sort of the structure of the theory, the way he thought about grand unified theory, how he thought it ought to look, you know, may have been a blind alley, though there are at least sort of resonances in the way people are now trying to do similar kinds of things with... with Physics, it's much too complicated for me to understand right, string right. theory and M-theory yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, people who really know that stuff tell me that there are there are parallels, at least, or, or sort of a distant chain of connection. But, you know, I don't think it was unreasonable of Einstein to think that that was an important problem. I think it was exactly right. Um, I just, it was not one likely to produce a solution given the knowledge and tools he had at the time. But, you know, Einstein was more interested in doing than, than, than anything else. If he thought it was an important problem, he'd do it. Right. I mean, I guess here's what I mean. You know, he resisted um, quantum physics as it developed in his lifetime and, and the, the unruliness of that, the messiness of that. Um, I mean, Freeman Dyson said it this way that, that uh, you know, Einstein was, was obsessed with the mountaintops and then what a lot of what came along afterwards that happened in physics was looking at what happens down in the valleys and it's quite different and uh, I mean to me there's you could just say and maybe I'm stretching this too far but there's a parallel between you know he threw himself also in, in his socially and ethically into great causes of his time that truly were great causes and um, and when it came to the messy details of private life he just wasn't that interested is that a real stretch? <laughs> I think I, th- I think that's more than a stretch. I think it's actually wrong. Okay. Um, because you know Einstein certainly was involved in you know big ethical causes, pacifism, mm-hmm. the draft resistance movement, all that sort of stuff. But you know across the twenties and throughout his life, you know if there was a specific problem that caught his attention, he'd intervene. He wrote on behalf of the Scottsboro Boys. He tried right. to intervene in the case of uh, you know union organizers who were who were unjustly jailed in California. He uh, he he tried to uh, help with disastrous individual cases in the Balkans. He wrote to the British when they were going to hang a bunch of uh, Arab protesters in uh, in the Palestinian man- in the Palestine Mandate, um, and he he was one of a group of people who helped get most of those two dozen or so death sentences revoked. Um, so you know he he was perfectly capable of of getting down to cases in his ethical life. And similarly, in his science, you know, he did some really big things, of course. But you shouldn't 
forget that you know the, the the number of scientific papers he produced over his career fills several volumes right and some of those are enormous and some of those are very particular some of them are wrong but but you know he was interested in uh, how you measure very small electrical currents in forces got that paper wrong he uh, he wrote a paper about um, why the sky is blue you know, using statistical methods to, to explain the phenomenon in the atmosphere that, that, that gives us the perception of blue in the sky. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he wrote very detailed uh, calculations on general relativity to come up with some of the implications. He was doing that into the 30s. I mean, he was doing the grunt work of taking his big theory of general relativity and doing specific calculations to find out what the theory might actually mean in the physical world. Okay. So I think it's unfair to say that he just had this, this, this you know, only this, this vision of the very large problem. He was certainly interested in the biggest problems, and that's where he wanted to put most of his energy. But to say he, he was somehow, you know, head in the clouds, either in the ethical realm or in the scientific realm, is, is a misstatement. Right. And, no, and I, I mean, it is very impressive, the detail, and you give a lot of this in your book. I mean, you just mentioned a few of the cases. I, you know, I had marked a couple of pages, um, you know, paragraphs. I mean, he's, he intervened on behalf of individual prisoners, as you said, around the world, people he, uh, in Czechoslovakia and Bulgaria. Um, I mean, so, I mean, tell me, what what was behind all of that activity in terms of, of how Einstein saw, I don't know, some of these big concepts like, you know, right and justice? I mean, where was all of that coming from? If it wasn't coming from a kind of religious perspective, was it his sense of being, uh, you know, as you said, transnational? Um, there's well, I think. Sorry. I mean, I, I, certainly he was an internationalist, mm-hmm. and he didn't regard. He's. He's. I think he saw that he himself had standing in any dispute. That you know, if you if you damage any, what, what's the John Donne line? You know, any. If you damage any. Any individual, you damage me, kind of thing. I think he 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 had that sense. He really internalized that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and you know the cases he mostly intervened in, not exclusively, but a lot, were uh, were 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 cases involved in causes in which he'd already been a public figure. So I think he felt some sort of direct responsibility, not just a sort of you know, uh, you know, every man is my brother kind of feeling. I mean, if if he intervened in a lot of draft resistor cases. And I think he felt an obligation to do so because, you know, he urged draft resistance. You know, so some people might have done things based on his suggestion. And if they got in trouble, that, then he had some obligation to them. I think he felt that. Yeah, but I still think um, it's amazing that given who he was and how full his life was, you know, that he still had an attention span for those kinds of details and those specific cases. He had an attention span. He had that. He also had a really good personal secretary in Helen Dukas, <laughs> who I think, you know— um, Behind every every great mind is is another per, another mind that is much better suited to organizing the right. real details right. of life. And Helen Dukash was a master at making Einstein's life run smoothly, and, and she shouldn't be forgotten. Right. Um, so you know, and, and, and neither forgotten nor underestimated. Um, you know, but I think Einstein really did have a very strong sense of justice. And the thing about this, you know, when you when you say that, it doesn't mean that you just think things ought to be just or things ought to be fair. I think it means, meant for Einstein, it means practically for anyone who, 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 who thinks in this way, is that you know, justice only becomes justice if it's justice enacted in a specific instance. It's a fine thing to say, I believe in mm-hmm. you know, the rule of law and this, that, and the other thing. I mean, uh, there's been some very good work recently uh, and a book out on, uh, on Einstein and race. And one of the things it points out that Einstein was really progressive on issues of race, and he he uh, 
he did more in this country at a time when it really wasn't an upfront popular issue to emphasize the need for racial equity, racial justice. I think, again, that was a sense that, you know, it's one thing to say that you believe in, in you know, that all men are to be, you know, all humankind is to be treated equally and fairly or, or what have you. And it's another thing to, you know, it, it, it only becomes meaningful if when you confront an obvious inequity, an obvious inference, an injustice, you put some energy into, into at least recognizing it, bringing it to the public eye, doing something about it. And Einstein understood that. He did it. I mean, I, I want to understand how his perspective as a scientist, you know, maybe there aren't such direct connections, but how that also shaped his sense of justice and, and what he would do in the human sphere. I mean, he would say he, he perceived this tremendous order and majesty and beauty in nature, which certainly wasn't manifest in the politics of his time or in you know, social um, norms like racism in the United States. But, you know, when he felt that he had to speak out against that, had to intervene, did that also, was that also a reflection of his sense that something much larger and more cohesive um, and more just must be possible? I don't think so. I don't think Einstein saw, and I don't think we can find looking back, a direct connection between his science and what gave him joy about doing science and the human issues with which he became so okay. deeply identified as life went on. Um, you know, I think, in, and I think in general it's a mistake to look to the science or, or in some ways any great artistic or intellectual passion as in and of itself a source of ethical reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bad people can be great scientists. Bad people can be great composers or great poets or great writers or what have you. Uh, and very good people can be, you know, well-meaning people can be terrible at all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's a necessary connection between uh, between achievement in any creative field and, uh, and ethical or moral intelligence. But I do think that Einstein... And I think in some ways it makes Einstein the greater man as an ethicist, even for all of his, you know, the identifiable personal foibles and flaws and, and real, you know, sins he committed to, the, to some of those close to him. What makes him great as an ethicist and not just as a scientist is there's nothing necessary about his science that made him think about trying to make the world better for humankind in general and for the individual people he intervened, on whose behalf he intervened. Mm-hmm. But when he, in particular, when he became sufficiently famous that what he did and thought and spoke mattered, he didn't do what a lot of, you know, folks who became recognized for their work did, which is just kind of, you know, keep doing what they do and, and, and hunker down. He actually stepped forward and devoted time and energy that I think he would rather have devoted to science, in fact, right. to causes he felt were important. And, you know, the fact that he... he thought it through, felt it through, and did the actions that he did is what's truly admirable. All right. Not that there was some requirement from his science that he behaved as that. I don't think that requirement was there. No, that's really helpful. What am I not getting at? What am I not asking you when you think about Einstein's ethics? Einstein's ethics, more than anything else to me, do begin, as I think a lot of ethical thinking begins, from a sense of what he himself thought the world ought to be like, how he thought the world ought to treat him. 
when he was shocked into the realization that the world did not behave in a way that made him, Albert Einstein, happy, when that realization was forced in on him by the outbreak of the war in 1914, what he did was he thought that through and generalized from it and realized that if the world isn't treating Albert Einstein right, it's not treating a whole lot of people right, maybe not treating everybody right. And I think that's the real thing that's interesting about Einstein is he was able to leap past, you know, his, 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 in some sense, his training and his experience as a young star scientist to see that there really is a requirement to behave well in the world, to act well in the world, not just because you yourself are disappointed in something you want, but because that if people don't do that in a more generalized way, the whole world is, 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 is damaged. Hmm. I, I don't know. Was that clear at all? Yeah. It was. I mean, I think, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything else about Einstein. I mean, the, the other thing is, you know, I think to remember is, is, you know, there's a poem that William Carlos Williams, great American poet, uh, you know, author of Patterson and other, you know, just, you know, one of the icons of Between the Wars American Letters. And when Einstein first visited the United States, uh, uh, Williams wrote a sort of a poem in response, a poem of, of, of welcome or of praise that he titled St. Francis Einstein of the Daffodils. Right. And it's a fun poem. It's really interesting to read. Not, not necessarily a great poem, but it's, 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 it's fascinating. But we make a mistake when we make Einstein a saint. You know, he's sitting up there. His, his bust is up there on the, on the, you know, the wall of heroes on, uh, or the gate of heroes at Riverside Church in New York. Einstein himself, when he saw that, laughed and said, I knew I was a Jewish saint, but I didn't think they'd make me a Christian one. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, Einstein really was a human being, and he was flawed. Some of his causes were, were you know, maybe a little crazy. You know, who knows? Um, and, and, you know, certainly he wasn't perfect, uh, a perfect example of moral behavior to every person he ever encountered. And I think, again, that's a strength when you really think about it for Einstein. If Einstein, the problem with saints, and the problem with thinking of Einstein as a saint, is it somehow absolves the rest of us from responsibility to behave well, mm-hmm. you know, behaving that courageously, behaving that concentratedly is something that saints do, and the rest of us kind of muddle through. Well, Einstein just muddled through a lot. I mean, he muddled through at a higher level than many of us, but he still was muddling through. And I think that's that's the lesson I take, despite right. my, my affection for St. Francis. <laughs> you know, um, war is something that preoccupied him to the end of his life, and or militarism, and, and he lived through many different forms of war, and... I mean, I think, what was it, the last public act of his life was to add his name to a manifesto drafted by Bertrand Russell that called for global nuclear disarmament. I wonder if, um, and I don't know what your answer to this will be, if as you, having been steeped in his thoughts on this, and I mean, wars and, and military violence, this is still part of human social existence. I'm sure it will be forever. I mean, um, are there um, ideas that Einstein had about that or an approach to that that you that informs the way you think about these things in our time? Yes and no. I mean, Einstein's response to war and to militarism is complicated. It didn't start out as pure pacifism and it didn't end as, and, and it didn't end as pure pacifism. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he became a real committed ethical pacifist in the Bertrand Russell style in the 20s. When Hitler came to power, though, he had the intelligence. I mean, Einstein was many things, but he weren't stupid. Uh, and he recognized in Hitler uh, a crisis that could not be resolved by good wishes, by moral persuasion, by, by hoping for the best. And he recognized, and he told this to Winston Churchill as early as 1933, that, this is, that Hitler was somebody who needed to be opposed by force. Uh, and he broke very rapidly with his pacifist colleagues uh, on that issue. You know, by late 33, he was speaking in public about the need to oppose Einstein, and, and he at one point said that you know at this point he would himself enlist gladly Toes to Hitler. defeat this menace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course uh, he wrote the letters to or he signed the letters to Roosevelt about pursuing atomic research because of the fears that Germany might develop atomic bombs. And you know, after the uh, after the war when the bombs were dropped, he was deeply upset, and he felt that the the technological change in the, the killing power of human weapons was such that a whole new attitude towards war had to, had to come into being. And, he, and, and, you know, you couldn't fight a nuclear war, he felt. And, uh, you know, I think he's right. You cannot, you know, human society cannot survive in anything like the way we would like it to if there's a full-fledged nuclear exchange between two fully nuclear, you know, parties. Mm -hmm. so, um, so he wasn't wrong there. He was, you know, he was fortunately, for our sakes wrong on the notion that failing to disarm would inevitably lead to a war. It hasn't yet. May that continue, please. Um, and, you know, I think that my sense of Einstein's lessons for us today and lessons for me today are sort of summed up in the inconclusiveness of his exchange with Sigmund Freud in 33 about, uh, in, in letters that were ultimately published as a little book called Why War, in which they tried to understand why people fight, and they ultimately concluded that you know, it was it was something basic to human nature, and perhaps eventually, both enough technological development that would make people you know comfortable and wealthy, and that would scare people off the violence of of a technologically advanced war, and education, all these things might help change people's you know really mm -hmm. fundamental behavior. But neither Freud nor nor Einstein held out a lot of hope, and I have to say that that so far all the experience since Einstein's death suggests that that deep desire for a peaceful world combined with a lack of expectation that we're going to get it anytime soon still seems to me exactly right. right. All right. Well, I think this has been... Sorry. Oh. Um, okay. Um, let me... I, I think this has been terrific. Sorry, I just got some... I just had a question in my headphones. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to ask you before we close, and I think your last words were a few minutes ago, but... We haven't talked. Well, we've talked a bit. We've talked about about Einstein, Einstein's Judaism. We haven't really necessarily talked about Einstein's uh, God. The, you, I want to just ask you to say something about this sentence from your book. Uh, and this is a very kind of Jewish description, referring to Jacob who wrestled with the angel, wrestled with the messenger of God to become Israel. You said Einstein would play Jacob's role throughout his life, wrestling with something he called God to determine the shape of nature. What do you mean when you write that? Well, Einstein often used the language of faith, and specifically the word God, to talk about his desire to really understand nature at its deepest level. You know, another phrase he used at times, you want to know if God had any choice right. in the way he made the universe. And I think Einstein really wanted to know 
And he really wrestled with that sort of transcendent notion of God as the order in nature to try and force nature, force, you know, the, 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 this grand order uh, to reveal its true nature to him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as with Jacob, I mean, Jacob fought all, day, all night not knowing with whom he wrestled, you know, not, not getting to the, the actual inner form of whatever it was he was wrestling with. And, you know, Einstein spent his entire life trying to get nature to tell him how it really had to be at the deepest level. Mm-hmm. And in the end, he didn't get there. But it was a life I think Einstein felt supremely, you know, it was a task in life that Einstein felt supremely worth doing. Um, you know, I, I, like Einstein, I was raised in a, in, in a, a house with Jewish, uh, a Jewish history and, and, I had perhaps more, you know, at least at least the same, maybe more exposure to the Jewish tradition growing up. And uh, the language of, you know, th- those who really wrestled with faith and wrestled with ideas of divinity, is language that kept occurring to me as I as I as I tried to get engaged in in Einstein's life. And I think, uh, and it's clear that Einstein had some sense of that as well, because the language he used yeah. is 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 really, you know, it's very. It's not that it's clear, but it's very evocative. It sure is. I think, I don't know, Einstein didn't get there, you said. I mean, maybe he got kind of as far as Jacob did. wasn't clear still in the end who he was talking to, but he got his blessing. <laughs> let, me, let me qualify what I just said. Of course, Einstein made enormous discoveries. Yeah. Um, Einstein's universe is the one we live in. He figured out how the universe as a whole on its largest scale Mm-hmm. has to be organized. The implication, implications of his work led in his lifetime to realization that the universe has a history, uh, a, a moment of beginning, an evolution, a change over time, all that sort of stuff. Um, he was also, of course, one of the great founders of quantum theory. I mean, mm-hmm. even though he did not ultimately come to to relish the, the implications of his own discoveries, mm-hmm. he's certainly one of the handful of people most important to the early development of what became quantum mechanics. Um, so I'm not trying to suggest that Einstein didn't figure out an awful lot of of uh, what choice uh, his his God in nature had as as the universe was coming together, as the universe was 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 finding its order. Um, but you know, he left this world with an open question. Right. Right. Well. I think this is great. I want to ask my producers behind the glass if they have some questions. I'll be quiet for a moment. Okay. Let me just uh, toss one thing at you. Okay. I, I made the reference to Einstein and race, mm-hmm. um, and I forgot to mention the name. It's the the, the work is Fred Jerome. Yeah, I know and, about the book, and I haven't looked at it yet. You do you really recommend yeah. it? It. I mean. It it contains it contained a lot of historical detail I didn't know. Okay. I mean he you know it, it's a period I'm less interested in the American period. Right. Um, but you know Einstein, you know it confirmed what I sort of already knew. I mean from the Scottsboro Boys involvement all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, Einstein was very conscious of the injustices of race in this country, and he was as Jerome and his co-author whose name I forget documented. He was um, he was uh, he was significantly more active than an awful lot of people. Mm-hmm. Who would like to think well of themselves were in that time? So, um, I'm hearing it, no, you got. 
I, this is this question is coming from um, behind the glass, and I think again, this is not the period that you have been so interested in, but um, that Einstein once said that he would rather have been a plumber than a physicist, that he was kind of appealing to the common man. Are you aware of that? I think that uh, if I'm correct, the context of that, that phrase at one point he said, if you know, if quantum mechanics is really true, I would rather have been a plumber. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't think it had anything to do with the common man. All right, all right. Um, Cobbler, yeah, you I know, something, sure, anyway. something that's interesting to me, too, and you and I, I'll, I'll get into this with other people, was also his uh, fascination with Gandhi. And we, we actually found an old LP where he's, Mitch, is he with Gandhi? Or is he speaking, he's speaking about Gandhi, and it's wonderful. To, and it's, he's so clear. His voice is so clear. I mean, you know, his statement that the, what did he say, that the, that the great spiritual... The great moral teacher, teachers of humanity were artistic geniuses in the art of living. That's it. I mean, I love that phrase. Yeah, and, I do too. And I think it's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, you know, he had... Uh, there. One of the things about Einstein is that uh, being Albert Einstein, he met everybody. I mean, they were encountered... Mm-hmm. He, he met the, the sort of... The, the, the great sort of pan-Hindu thinker Tagore... Right. In Berlin. Yeah, I was reading about that in your book, yeah. Um, you know, he met Charlie Chaplin. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, everybody came through at one point or another. Uh, so one of the odd things, one of the reasons I actually wrote the book is in some ways Einstein really is a sort of touchstone around which all the first half of the 20th century <laughs> somehow, res- you know, you can find your way into any part of the 20th, that first half of the 20th century that you want through Einstein. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's only one or two degrees of separation. Um <laughs> He really was. I mean, people don't remember, in part because the cult of celebrity now is so pervasive, and people become celebrities and disappear and so forth. Uh, how, how unique, how how rare, and how new the idea of celebrity was back then. How odd it was for somebody to be known, ultimately, in some ways, just for being known. I mean, no, you know, the the great mass of people had no idea what Einstein had really done. They just knew he'd done something big and important. Or they couldn't understand it, even if it were explained to them. That's right, but his mm-hmm. image was everywhere, and you know the capacity, the technological capacity to get that image out hadn't been there I see. before. I mean, Einstein was right at the beginning. You know, he was he was famous in the way you know Charlie Chaplin, or Mary Pickford, or you know the the you know uh, um, Joe Lewis would have been would mm-hmm. have been famous. You know, just sort of this this figure that that hit the newsreels, hit the wire reports, you know, and and became somehow this kind of just all-purpose symbol of what was going on in the world at that time, which was, in Einstein's case, for good and ill. I mean, he became the target of people who thought he was the symbol of everything that was going wrong in the world. Mm-hmm. And he became the beacon for those who really wanted the sense of hope and change and all that that they imputed to him as well. And then he kind um, of lived up to that in some ways, didn't he? I mean, he, he took that well, seriously as a responsibility. That's right. And again, I mean, it's what I was saying earlier yeah. in this conversation, that, you know, not everybody whom celebrity touched or tried to touch in that way responded in the same way. Mm-hmm. But Einstein did. And and that's one of the things that makes him quite remarkable. Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for this, and thanks for your work, which is just terrific. Well, my pleasure. Mm. Thank and you so much. We will um, let you know what's happening with this and send you a CD and all that. It'll Great. In, well, in the, we're talking mid-December, so it'll be a couple of weeks. No worries. Okay. Do my best to Michael Scholar if you I will. I will. I will. Right. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye now.